If you will, turn in your <clears throat> Bibles to 1 Samuel, chapter 13. We'll begin at verse 19. We're going through verse 23 of chapter 14. Remember last week we talked about uh, Saul and his uh, plight against the Philistines, how the Philistines had come up against them. And so this week we'll look at that continued episode and also his son, Jonathan, as he enters into this and how we can compare the two and see just this vast difference between these two men. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help with the text. Our Lord Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth of it. We thank you for the fact that it has been written down so that we might know about you, so that we might know what you require of us. And so now as we come to your word, we pray that you would teach us more about you. And we pray that you would teach us more of what you would have us to do, convict us of our sins, and show us the truth of your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And so as I read this text, we'll have this, well, as we get this picture of Saul in this text, it made me think of the saying that we've all heard, that Nero fiddled while Rome burned. You guys have all heard this saying before. There's lots of modern versions of the same idea, the idea that the leader takes no notice while his empire is falling down around him. When I began to research that statement, the truth is, is that Rome did indeed burn, but fiddles weren't invented for some hundreds of years later, and so Nero actually didn't fiddle, which is kind of a neat thing to think that he may have done that, and that Nero was actually like staying in some sort of palace away from Rome while the whole thing was happening. But his leadership was such that many people have said that he must have been doing something while Rome burned because he did nothing. He must have been fiddling. He must have been doing something meaningless because the city of Rome burned to the ground. And he did nothing to help the city. In fact, after the city burned or part of it burned, he actually built more palaces for himself on top of the ruins from the burnt city. Then he blamed the fire on the Christians sparked some persecutions in those times, probably when the apostles Peter and Paul were both murdered, among other brothers and sisters of the faith. And so this idea of being negligent while something terrible is going on around you, even though we like to contribute it to the leaders of our country or any country, it's not definitely not limited to them. It goes on in families goes on in churches and workplaces and communities. It's always happening to some degree or another. When a father neglects his duty to his family or an elder to his church, it's a far worse crime, even if you ask me, than a leader neglecting his country. Why? Well, because countries are built on families and churches. And where they go, the country usually goes also. Just look at Rome, for instance. And so today... We're going to look at this idea with Saul, a leader who is slowly sinking into indecision and fear, making odd decisions, then doing nothing, leaving 
leadership to his son and to others in his company. And we get a very vivid picture of this in today's text. We'll consider this comparison between Saul and his son, Jonathan. One is a picture of a failed leader of his people. The other is a picture of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I think that we see him in Jonathan in this text. And again, Jonathan's not perfect, so we're not saying that, but I think he points us to the real Savior, to the leader, the one who is perfect, always leads with a sword, which is his very word. So with that, we'll consider two points today. Saul, a picture of cowardice, and Jonathan, a picture of Christ. So with that, let's read the text. Let's stand together as we do so. 1 Samuel chapter 13, starting at verse 19, and then reading through 14.23. Now there was no blacksmith to be found throughout all the land of Israel, For the Philistines said, Lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. But every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And and the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares, and for the mattocks a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his sons, or his son, had them. And the garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. On, on, or one day, Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the Philistine garrison on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Saul was staying in the outskirts of, outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. Some peop, the people who were with him about, were about 600 men, including Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli, the priest of the Lord in Shiloh, wearing an ephod. And the people did not know that Jonathan had gone. Within the passes by which Jonathan sought to go over to the Philistine garrison, There was a rocky crag on one side and a rocky crag on the other side. The name of one was Bozes and the the name of the other, Sinna. One crag rose on the north in the front of Michmash and the other in the south in front of Geba. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor-bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But if they say, Come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. So both of them showed themselves to the garrison of the Philistines. And the Philistines said, Look, Hebrews are coming out of, out of the holes where they have hidden themselves. And the men of the garrison hailed Jonathan and his armor bearer and said, Come up to us, and we will show you a thing. And Jonathan said to his armor bearer, 
Come up after me, for the Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. Then Jonathan climbed up on his hands and feet, and his armor-bearer after him. And they fell before Jonathan, and his armor-bearer killed, killed them after him. And that, <clears throat> and that first strike which Jonathan and his armor-bearer made killed about twenty men within as it, <clears throat> as it were half a furrow's length in an acre of land. And there was panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. And the watchmen of Saul and Gibeah of Benjamin looked, and behold, the multitude was dispersing here and there. Then Saul said to the people who were with him, Count and see who has gone from us. And when they counted, behold, Jonathan and his armbrayer were not there. So Saul said to Ahijah, Bring the ark of God here. For the ark of God went at that time with the people of Israel. Now while Saul was talking to the priest, the tumult of the camp of the Philistines increased more and more. So Saul said to the priest, Withdraw your hand. Then Saul and all the people who were with him rallied and went into battle. And behold, every, Philist and behold, every Philistine's sword was against his fellow, and there was great confusion. Now the Hebrews who had been with the Philistines before that time had gone up with them into the camp. Even they also turned to be with the Israelites, who were with Saul and Jonathan. Likewise, when all the men of Israel who had hidden themselves in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were fleeing, they too followed hard after them into battle. So the Lord saved Israel that day, and the battle passed beyond Beth Haven. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just a quick review of where we're at in the text. Remember what happened last week. Jonathan won a battle against the Philistines at Geba. Saul sounded his horn that this had happened, and the people heard that Saul feeded, defeated the Philistines. And so Saul was kind of getting credit for what Jonathan did. Remember the Philistines then got upset, mustered an army, as many as the sands on the seashore, and Israel's army scattered to the tombs and then jumped the Jordan River and were afraid. And then Saul, hoping to throw some kind of good feelings at the problem, made a sacrifice that he shouldn't have. And what's the consequence? He lost his kingdom, and his troops were still afraid. And now the Philistines have them surrounded. And it's interesting to kind of look at this situation with Saul, because we're going, this is kind of the, the beginning of the end for him. It doesn't get any better from this point. Throughout history, it's situations like this that make or break leaders. You know, you read of these great leaders in history. History tends to praise the leader who stood up against all odds and still won. We love to read those stories. But the Bible, for us, gives us an insider look at this idea because it reminds us that God is behind every battle, behind every victory, and loss, as it were. Saul forgot that, and I don't think Jonathan did. And so we're going to look at this comparison between these two men. And so first, we're going to see Saul, a picture of cowardice. <clears throat> so first, there in verse 19, we're given this bleak picture of the Hebrew armament. They are basically using farm equipment to fight. All their weapons 
or all weapons, except for maybe swords, kind of find their genesis in farming or hunting anyway. And so that's not an uncommon thing for the farmer to pick up his shovel or whatever and go to battle. I mean, it wasn't uncommon at all. Things like battle axes and that sort of thing that we normally associate with Vikings, it's because they were used them to cut wood and it was time to go to war and they just said this is as good as anything. And that's where a lot of the genesis of these sorts of weapons come about. And so this wouldn't have been completely unorthodox. However, there was a definite strategy by the Philistines to have the Israelites fight with their rakes and garden hose rather than fight with swords and spears. There weren't any blacksmiths around. And if it wasn't bad enough, Israel was having to go into the Philistines to have their Philistine blacksmiths sharpen all of their tools, sharpen their mattocks and sharpen their ox goad and all these different things. And we kind of have this, this laid out before us what's going on. You can kind of imagine this, this picture. I mean, can you imagine the morale in their camp at this point? The Philistines, with their chariots, with their shiny bronze armor, with their bronze swords glinting in the sun, and Israel with their sharpened garden hoe, or their ox goad, which is basically the thing that they kind of prodded the ox along, just a stick with a point on the end of it. Not much of a match, right? We're kind of led to believe that Israel is in trouble here. Uh, it's not a good thing. Saul had really got his soldiers in a bind at this point. So I'm sure at this point, right, he's this leader. He's supposed to be in the war room. He's formulating some master strategy in order to defeat the evil Philistines. Remember, God, at one point with Saul, what did he say to him? It was back in chapter 9. He said about Saul, he shall save my, my people from the hand of the Philistines. I have heard the cry of my people. Here is their king. He is going to deliver them. And so when, when God says he's going to do something, he typically does it. He always does it. So surely Saul is hanging on to those promises, right? Even though he's been told that he's not the chosen king anymore, he knows that the Lord is going to deliver his people. He always does. And so, as we look in the text, you'd think that we'd find him, like, getting his generals together, formulating some incredible kind of strategy to go out and win the day, um, but that's not what we see. Look at chapter 14, verse 2. It says this, Saul was staying in the outskirts of Gibeah in the pomegranate cave at Migron. That word cave there is probably better translated, and probably, if unless you... I mean, if you have something else besides the ESV, it probably translates it under the pomegranate tree. And I tend to like that translation better of, the, of that particular phrase. And so he's under a pomegranate tree with a priest from a rejected line of priests. He has Ahijah, the son of Ahitub, Ichabod's brother, son of Phinehas, son of Eli. Remember Eli's sons, the bad guys? who God cursed their entire line, and then one of them had a son, and his and the son, the mother died giving birth, and they named the son Ichabod, that God's glory has gone away from Israel. Well, Ahijah, the brother of Ichabod, is there. 
and he's wearing this ephod, which is a device that has somehow helped them decide the will of God, or supposed to. Uh, historians don't know a whole lot about this linen ephod, other than what it was made of, but it was somehow supposed to decide God's will, or show what God's will was. And so here we have this ephod on a rejected priest, and Saul, the rejected king, under the pomegranate tree, just kind of hanging out. He's wearing this device, hoping to tell them what God's will is. It's kind of hilarious to me. You really can't make this stuff up. It's like the perfect picture, or the, the horrible picture, of complacency, of hopelessness. They are frightened. They're lost. They're just kind of hoping for someone to swoop down and tell them what to do. Please, Lord, tell us what to do, but we don't hear that they're actually praying. Even though God told them that he would deliver them from the Philistines, they were scared into indecision and inaction. And I think at this point we have to watch ourselves because this can take a couple of forms in the life of a Christian. And I think first... <clears throat> it takes the form of us forgetting the promises of God. It's real simple, just like Saul's done here, forgetting that he said, and I will be with you until the end of the age. There, are, there will be times in the life of a believer when we, are, when we feel like we are fighting a battle against multitudes, and the only thing that we have is a garden hoe. I think we've all felt that, that feeling. And it's what we do during those times that really defines our faith. Do we trust the promises of God to be true? Or do we work out something for ourselves, gathering those old idols of the past? Those old idols that we know that they can't save us, but man, they sure do make us feel good. They make us feel right. It sure does feel good to have money and security. Or when people like me, that makes me feel really good. Or when my kids are perfect. Or when my marriage is perfect. Those things make me feel great, so I'll trust in those things rather than trusting the promises of God. And they become idols. Good things become idols when we worship them rather than Jesus. We may even want to start believing that those things bring us some sort of righteousness or hope. We do that. I think the inauguration on Friday showed both ends of that. Uh, the, you know, particularly as we looked at the political spectrum, both ends kind of hoping for a savior in D.C. There's the Trump fans that were glad their savior had finally came. They're the Obama fans, sad to see their, their Savior go, fearful of the future. It was just interesting to see this, even as I watched the inauguration, even in the high school, listening to the students go back and forth. They're hoping that their Savior's in Washington, D.C. They really are hanging their hopes on this man. It's funny how we'll turn to people who we don't even know to save us. We don't know these people. We don't know Obama. We don't know Trump. Unless I don't know something about you. We don't know these people, but we'll turn to them to save us when there is one who said to us, 
I knit you together in your mother's womb. Our creator said that of us. He said he'll never leave us and forsake us. Why do we trust men rather than trust God? I think the other form that this takes is complacency in the life of a believer. Sometimes we let our fear drive us under the pomegranate tree, sitting next to Saul. We gather up folks who will commiserate with us, and we sulk and we pity ourselves as completely powerless, hopeless people who can't wait for this to all be over. We take out our fiddles, and we watch the world burn around us, even though we have the very words that could slow the devastation. We hate the world so much that we wouldn't even dare to do that. We just keep playing our music. We have to be careful because it's easy for us and it's easy for the bad in this world to scare us to the point that we never shine a light in our communities ever again. That's a sad state for the believer to be in. And so let's look at the other side of this coin. Let's look at Jonathan, who I believe is a picture of Christ. Let's compare Saul to his son, who just, who we just met in last week's passage, right? He, he, he went and he defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and we met him for the first time. We didn't even know Saul had a son, but he does. After this incident with the farm implements, you know, everyone's got their sharpened garden hose and rakes, Jonathan is ready to fight. He isn't hiding, but instead he gathers his shield bearer, his armor bearer, and basically the armor bearer would have been the one who kind of carried his other weapons. You know, Jonathan wasn't just a spear and a shield. He had all these other weapons going on too, the typical big soldier of the day. He had this armor bearer would carry his armor for him, but the armor bearer also fought by his side. He watched his backside. And their plan was to go over to the Philistine camp. Are they crazy? Do they understand the odds? So what is their plan? Look at verse 6 and 7 of chapter 14. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, Come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. I love this. First, Jonathan says, Let's go over and fight these uncircumcised. This is kind of an insult. He recognizes himself, his people as God's people, everyone else as not. And let's go get these uncircumcised. And this next part is one of my favorite things in this book. It may be, or you could substitute, perhaps the Lord will work for us. For nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. So what's going on here? Is Jonathan doubting? Is Jonathan weak in faith because he says, well, maybe the Lord's going to help us? No. He just doesn't presume 
upon the Lord's exact will for saving his people. He ultimately knows that the Lord has a plan to save his people, of which he is one of those people. He knows the Lord's promises, and he is sure of them. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. The Lord will choose how he is going to save his people. He's going to do what he's going to do, and he can use whatever or whomever he wants to do that. I think it's a comforting truth for the believer to hang on to. It's a nightmare for the unbeliever to know that there's a God in heaven and he does as he pleases. It's kind of scary if you're an unbeliever. If you're a believer, it should be the most comforting truth in Scripture. Also know how Jonathan loved this man that he was with, and I kind of love this this idea too, This the trust that he has in this, this man. And the man, again, trusts him. This this man who's, who's under him loves him, and he's going to die for him. This is a different idea than what we see in Saul, isn't it? Who coerces others to fight with him. And his plan, again, to cross over to the Philistine camp, and if the Philistines taunt them, say, come on up here and fight. If they taunt them, then Jonathan and his shield bearer are going to attack. That's the plan. And this is how, this is what Jonathan says, this is how we'll know that the Lord is with us. This isn't, again, to put the Lord to the test, again, to somehow presume upon what he's going to do, but a simple way of checking the will of the Lord. I think we'd do well to see this as well. The Lord doesn't always give us some sort of perfect sign, do this, do that. Sometimes things just fall into place or out of place, and both could be ways of the Lord showing us his plan. I think, um, you know, it's like the story of the guy who was waiting for the Lord to save him and let three, he was on top of his roof and there was a flood and the, the three boats passed him by and he's like, nope, I'm waiting for the Lord to save me. And obviously those three boats were, were there to save him. And so I think we would do well to pay attention to the things that are going on in our lives. Jonathan was doing that just that here. And then he, we talk, we hear about these two crags, these two like mountains that he has to climb through. Um, they plan to travel amongst these crags named Bozes and Sinna, roughly translated slippery and thorny. Uh, small, so no small feat lies before Jonathan in order to get through them. And he goes up, <clears throat> says he climbs hand and feet up this mountain, and they taunt him. And I love their taunt to him. They see, they say, come up here, we will show you a thing. That's kind of a rough translation. Basically, we're going to teach you a lesson, is essentially how we would translate that. And so, Jonathan and his shield bearer then go up to their camp and actually give them a free lesson in warfare, killing 20 of them in a very short time. Not only that, did you see what else went on? When that happened, look at verse 15 of chapter 14. And there was a panic in the camp, in the field, and among all the people. The garrison and even the raiders trembled. The earth quaked, and it became a very great panic. Is it because Jonathan was such a big dude that he caused the earth to quake? I doubt it. What was going on here? Why would the earth quake? Because the Lord 
of creation fights for them. The Lord threw them into panic. The Philistines scattered, making them easy targets. Another interesting thing is happening here, as this is all going on, back under the pomegranate tree. <coughs> What's going on? The priest, seeing this, and Saul seeing this commotion, they think it's time to get ready to go in battle. And so Saul calls the priest and the ark to come forward. And the priest is getting ready to speak to the army. Why? Well, Deuteronomy 20 commands them, commands the priest that any time Israel is to go out to battle, the priest is to give them a word. Well, what does Saul tell the priest to do? Withdraw your hand. Saul tells him to withdraw his hand, another sign that he doesn't concern himself with the law of God, only what he thinks is right. And again, in the end, in verse 23, we're told who the victor is. We are told that the Lord saved Israel on that day, not Jonathan, not his shield bearer, not Saul. The battle passed beyond Beth Haven, so there's more battle to go. And so, how should we look at this? How should we see this? And I think you are starting to see more and more and us as a church as we've been going through this narrative that Jonathan's bravery isn't here for us to somehow mimic. The point of this story isn't that Jonathan was very brave. Let us go now and be very brave. I will never be so brave as to climb a mountain and attack an army. It's just not going to happen. Sorry, Lord, I'm failing you. No, that's not what's going on here. Jonathan's bravery has nothing to do with Jonathan. It has to do with his Lord. The call of this passage isn't for us to be brave as we come up against our enemies. We aren't Jonathan. We aren't going to storm Mount Slippery or Thorn anytime soon and kill soldiers. This is not for us. We are under the pomegranate tree with Saul at best, here, we are afraid, we need a deliverer, we need Jonathan. But we continue to trust in Saul for whatever reason. This is our sin nature that we struggle with. Here, Jonathan is the perfect picture of our Lord Jesus, the one who would go after his enemies, the enemies of his people. What are they? Sin and death. And despite the odds, he would be victorious. And we would share in his victory simply because we are his. Not because of our bravery in battle. Not because we carry a sword by his side and somehow fight sin and death with him. But again, because of what he did for us. We are far from brave. As the Lord grows us, I think we'll see more and more chances for this kind of bravery in the face of trial and, and faith in the face of difficulty. We'll do well to remember Jonathan here, this picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who completely trusted his Heavenly Father to do exactly what he said he was going to do, Jonathan didn't know that God would use him to kill 20 and drive the Philistines away. 
Jonathan could have easily died in this battle. However, he trusted the Lord. But what do we know about Jesus? He did know that he would be used to save his people and that he would have to die in order to do that because nothing can hinder the Lord from saving his people by many or by few or by one, if it so pleased him. And that's what he did exactly with Jesus. And so now, just as I said, we don't need to look at Jonathan's goodness here, but Jesus's. Jonathan would not have fiddled while Rome burned. He was not content to sit under the tree and rosin up his bow, as it were, while Israel was ridden over by the power of the Philistines. He grabbed his right-hand man, his weapon, and he went and did something. Why? Because he was just as safe under that pomegranate tree as he was in the battle, because he was the Lord's. A quote from Stonewall Jackson, I was reminded of this while I went over this text, says this, Stonewall Jackson, Confederate military uh, general, talking to one of his captains, he said this, Captain, my religious belief teaches me to feel as safe in the battle as in bed. God has fixed the time for my death. I do not concern myself about that, but to be always ready, no matter when it may overtake me. Captain, that is the way all men should live, and then all would be equally brave. Jonathan had no concern for his own life what, or what might be if he climbs this mountain. He just knew that the Lord was going to save his people, and he did just that. And so how do we translate this into our own lives? Well, complacency in the life of a believer shows that the believer is content with things rather than the things that God is doing right now. This isn't just material things, but anything that would cause us to have rest other than Jesus Christ. Do we find rest in the approval of man? It's real easy when people like you to be comfortable, isn't it? If we do, it'll cause us to compromise eventually because man doesn't like the law of God and they're going to want us to not like it too. Do we find rest in tolerance and understanding? If we do, it'll cause us to compromise on God's word, which at times is not tolerant and it's definitely not tolerant of your sin or my sin or the sin of anyone else's. Do we find rest in our health, maybe in our financial security? The Lord can take those things from us tomorrow. Then what? And so Christians, we are called to be active in acts of mercy in our communities, to be active in talking about others, about our Savior, to be people who wish to see our families grow in the Lord. Will we fiddle while Rome burns? Want to see what that looks like in a family, in a church, in a community? We don't want to see that. Just read history. It's happened before, and it will happen again when people neglect the word of the Lord. And so let us jump up and be a people of action. The Lord is behind us. What do we have to fear? 
And so in conclusion, brothers and sisters, let us rest on the promises of God, lest we become afraid, lest we become complacent people who rest under that tree of our false comfort while the world dies around us. Let us rest in the promises of God that he will deliver his people rather than resting on our own ability to be perfect because we can't. There is no rest there. Let us rest in Jesus, the one who stormed Mount Calvary with the cross that I deserved on his back, and he died the death I deserved to give me the glory and righteousness that was all his. Let us rest, then, in the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, as we come to you, we pray that you would be with us, your church. We know you've told us that over and over, but Lord, we don't always trust you. And so give us assurance. Give us strength. Give us mercy. Give us forgiveness, Lord, when we don't trust you. Show us how to do that more and more, that we might not be men and women of complacency. We might be men and women of action seeking to proclaim the name of Jesus from the rooftops so that men and women may hear and be saved. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.